This is doomed to repeat. Welcome to Doom to Repeat. This week we are talking about the anti-vaccination movement. I am your host, Nick Hoffman. My co-host, as always, is... Alex Cummings, Associate Professor of History at Georgia State University and uh, Existential Howl from Darkest Gastonia, North Carolina. Hey, and don't forget, you're also one of the people who decides whether or not I get my PhD, so this is only kind of awkward most of the time. Watch out. (laughs) So, immediately... I said anti-vaccination movement, and I think a bunch of people clenched a little bit. This is an awkward topic because I think it's a very divisive topic. It's not a lot of gray area here. One of my favorite shows is The X-Files, and it's not just because David Duchovny and those soft eyes, but also, (laughs) I mean, I I like a good conspiracy as much as the next guy because oftentimes there's that little nugget of truth which makes them intriguing, and I've studied history a long time and realized that oftentimes they aren't crazy enough, but I remember, uh, I believe it's the end of the second or third season, they discover this kind of warehouse. And in the warehouse are these records. And in the records are vaccination documentation for everyone's smallpox vaccine. This came out in the late 90s. So there's this fear that the government is somehow tracking children using these smallpox vaccinations. Flash forward to the modern era. We've had studies out of England linking autism to the MMR vaccine. That has not only since been disproven, but the doctor who did the studies is now in prison for stealing blood from children. But it's a a fear that hasn't gone away. In fact, uh, it seems to have grown from mentioning mercury to uh, formaldehyde being in the shots, all of which is also out of date, to fears around the world. In France, apparently, they link it to impotence, which, I mean, the French and impotence, it's a terrifying thought. Who's going to have those affairs? (laughs) I'm not. Somebody's got to pick up the slack. So what we're, what we're trying to link it to is something kind of broader than just the parents' rights movement, as one of our interviewees will, will talk about. It's this kind of fear of, as Alex and I see it, a fear of authority. Right. Him and I are both academics. At least I pretend to be. He has a book published. Uh, Democracy of Sound. Find it in your local bookstore or by the side of the road. I don't know if the bookstore still exists. There's a box on Moreland Avenue. <laughs> Look it up. It's in paperback now. Yeah. But we, we should get to this because, like, there's this idea that ivory tower liberals are telling our children, blah, we can't trust teachers. And it goes down the line. You know, this is something that a lot of scholars, a lot of writers, journalists, um, even philosophers have talked about. And it's something that's kind of gripped American society. The sense that there's a crisis of authority, there's a crisis of experts. Um, Think about the Vietnam War. These were the best and the brightest who got us into this mess. Nixon lied during Watergate. Um, Clinton lied. Bush lied about Iraq. If you look at a book like Daniel Rogers' Age of Fracture, you see this. The idea that we once believed what Walter Cronkite had to say. Well, we don't anymore. We don't have faith in journalists. We don't have faith in the media. Uh, Many people don't have faith in academics or academia as an institution uh, or government that it will tell the truth or even scientists when you look at climate change denial and skepticism. Or doctors, when you look at this vaccination situation, the people who are supposed to be the experts, the people who are supposed to know, the people who are supposed to give you good counsel about the things that matter to you most in the world, in this case, your children, we just can't trust them. And that is a big problem. And, you know, it's it's not a problem with a simple answer, but it's been happening. And to go to what Nick was alluding to about conspiracy theories having a nugget of truth, um, this is not 
an example that's especially pertinent to the United States uh, directly, but as part of the effort to find Osama bin Laden, the CIA organized a fake vaccination drive in Pakistan to, by some circuitous and convoluted means that I don't completely understand, figure out where bin Laden was in Abbottabad and other cities and locations in Pakistan. In Pakistan, there's already been a struggle to get poor and rural populations to assent to vaccination. Pakistan is one of the few countries in the world where polio still exists. And as hard as it is to get over local suspicions and prejudices about sticking this needle in the child's arm, when the CIA, the U.S. federal government, and military-industrial complex and intelligence services actually deceive people in ways that cause grievous harm to children and families, it's not entirely wrong that we're suspicious of institutions. So I say that as someone who uh, loathes the anti-vaccination movement with a white-hot hatred, but we have to understand that people are not always wrong to wonder if their institutions and their experts are telling them the truth. And to your point, there, there's a bunch of conditions where, on one hand, some of them do turn out to be realistic that the FDA hasn't gotten into, and we'll, we'll talk about that coming up. But there's also the other side of this, which is how many times have you been on Facebook where you see the clickbait that says, doctors hate her because she discovered X, and it's an oil or, or a crystal or some way to lose 10 pounds that apparently after about 10 years of talking about healthcare as a forefront of debate, the idea that there is something that doctors is, are either telling us or not telling us is perfectly believable because we've driven the whole healthcare system through the mud in a way. And it's just infinitely frustrating. Well, and how many people believe that the insurance companies and the doctors have a cure for cancer, but they're not willing to share it? I mean, you know, there's a non-trivial number of people who really believe that, you know, there's some kind of silver bullet out there that has been suppressed um, for the sake of the profit of the people who make chemotherapy chemicals, right? That speaks to a very deep uh, level of distrust and cynicism that exists in our society. And maybe that's a, just a side effect of capitalism being a uh, system that is cynical and not worth trusting. <laughs> Well, and I mean, it is. It's true. It's, it's interestingly bleak that in an era where it seems oftentimes that companies, that corporations are more powerful than nation states, they, they extend internationally. I mean, the company that you deal with possibly most in America, Bayer Pharmaceuticals, is a German company. Uh, they own everything from aspirin to they invented heroin. So it was a cough suppressant for children. Don't worry about it. Didn't they do acid too? They, um, Von Hoffman invented that. So <laughs> no relation. This brings us to our first interview. Nadia Dernbach, she addresses the same problems we were just talking about, but in the 19th century. Back then, doctors had so much power in Victorian England that they could literally force vaccinations on people, breaking down the door late at night in some sort of vaccination <coughs> sting. Ruby Ridge, Waco, jackbooted thugs. <laughs> I like the idea that Waco was just over the flu vaccine. It was um, MMR. <laughs> so with that ridiculous introduction... I hope you enjoy uh, Dr. Nadia Durmbach.
science ever done for us? TV off. Science is like a blabbermouth who ruins a movie by telling you how it ends. Well, I say there are some things we don't want to know. Important things. Yeah. Enough talk. It's smashing time. Is this Dr. Durbach? It is. Hi, Nick. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. So uh, give me your name and uh, your, your your title or position or whatever you want to be introduced as. Sure. My name is Nadia Durbach, and I am professor of history at the University of Utah, and I specialize in British history and the history of the body. How does mass vaccination start in England, and then how is it accepted? How is it you know, received? Vaccination starts to be provided through the poor law on a voluntary basis in the early part of the 19th century. So um, the poor law catered to people who were destitute and had become dependent on the state. But one of the services they provided for people was free vaccination. Not a lot of people took them up on this. But starting in 1853, the government decided to make smallpox vaccination mandatory. And by mandatory, the law actually stated that every child, every child born in the United Kingdom needed to be vaccinated. But there were very few mechanisms for actually ensuring that this was the case early on. Um, there was actually no registration of birth that was required until the 1870s. So it was actually quite difficult to track uh, the numbers of people who were actually getting vaccinated and to actually control the process. But there was immediate reaction against it. So starting with this 1853 Act, this Compulsory Vaccination Act, a lot of people started to rebel against the government and to refuse to participate in this. And it was a lot easier for middle class people who didn't want to get vaccinated to avoid it. But it became increasingly difficult as new measures were put into place for working class people. So a lot of the resistance to this act came from a working class population who felt that they were expected to get their children vaccinated while middle class people could avoid it. That's interesting, but like, how is this sold to them? Is this is this sold to them at all, or is this just you know the iron fist of empire coming down and saying you're getting this done? Yeah, there were no there was no sort of PR around this. A uh, law was passed, it was put into place, and everybody was required to do it. And the mechanism eventually that grew for enforcement, which starts to happen in the 1860s, is a series of government um, officials called vaccination officers who were put in charge of ensuring that everyone in their district was vaccinated. And this might mean knocking on doors. It would mean checking the birth registers once that had become mandatory. And so this was done through a policy of policing, state policing, rather than what we would kind of consider um, public relations, public health, education. This was just um, mandated as a law to protect the public's health. And it was enforced really through these vaccination officers. Were, were the vaccines seen as effective? Were people like, I'm thinking like tinfoil hats here saying the government's just tried, <laughs> yeah. you know, like the fluoridation of water in Dr. Strangelove yeah. kind of. Well, you know, I think we tend to see these people as really fringy. The people who said that, oh, it doesn't work. I'm not going to have my kid vaccinated. But if we think back to that moment, a lot of things were going on. 
on the one hand, there actually was no scientific explanation for why this worked. The, the method of vaccination, which had developed out of smallpox inoculation, which is when you infect someone artificially with live smallpox to prevent a kind of more serious case later on, the technology of vaccination using cowpox instead of smallpox which humans, you know, don't really react to, was a fairly new technology and had been invented by Edward Jenner in, at the end of the 18th century. But his studies had just said, essentially, look, this works. I can demonstrate that it works. Empirical practices show that it works. But there was actually no theory behind it. I mean, there were lots of ideas in circulation, but the idea of an immune system, which is what we use to explain how a vaccination works, was really decades away. That's a late 19th, early 20th century phenomenon. Smallpox is a virus, but no one had heard of germ theory until later in the 19th century. So this was very much a practice that people were told worked, but with no science actually supporting it. So it was not that people resisted this and said, oh, it's unscientific or I don't believe the science, is that there actually really was no scientific theory behind it. It was really a practice that worked and could be demonstrated to work, but there was very little explanation that regular people could be sort of brought on board with. The other problem is that in a world in which there is no germ theory, there is no sterilization of instruments, um, the fact that vaccination is performed at this time from arm to arm, so the pus is taken out of one human and put into another, um, unsterilized instruments meant that all kinds of different infections of what we know to be infections are being passed from arm to arm. Um, people are taking that arm back into a very unsanitary home. And it was not uncommon for small children's arms to get extremely infected and sometimes to fall off to get something like what we know to be gangrene. And so sure. there were actually very serious repercussions sometimes when a vaccination was performed. And it mm -hmm. wasn't, um, you know, a sterilized sanitary hypodermic needle. It was what we call a lancet, which is a small surgical tool. It's a knife. Or there were um, specialized vaccination devices that had been patented at the time, which were a series of small knives. And these would be used to cut into the flesh on a child's arm. And this was mandated if you were having a state vaccination performed, you had to have it done in about five places on the arm to ensure that the vaccination would take. So if you can imagine a baby's arm covered in five different places with these kind of cross-hatching cuts, it really allowed for any number of infections to take place, and it became actually quite a dangerous process. And so we can understand from that perspective that there's no scientific explanation for this, and the results are actually quite alarming for many people, that this would have been something that people were very wary about doing to their very small children. I'm actually curious, how did they sell this in Parliament? Were there, you know, doctors in whites coming out, like, and explaining what they were going to do? How they sold it in Parliament, the question of well, how did this even pass legislation? There were a lot of epidemic diseases throughout the early part of the 19th century. Um, we're most familiar with cholera. Cholera was particularly bad. But there was almost nothing you could do about cholera. Um, even though um, studies were performed on water and people understood, some small numbers of people understood that cholera was a waterborne disease, this theory did not take off and there was very little one could have done about cholera. And what this meant was that vaccination was the only thing one could do to prevent an infectious disease and the only disease it could prevent at the time was smallpox. And so a very small number of 
very kind of politically active members of the medical profession who were trying to kind of seek their own authority at that time, get state approval to reduce the amount of quackery in the world and really give them more powers to be the only kind of medical professionals. They started to lobby parliament and say things like, look, we can control disease. Enough of this kind of sweeping the streets attitude to epidemic disease. Let's do something practical. And what we have to offer you is vaccination. So I'm quite convinced that it had as much to do with cholera and fears about other epidemic diseases that really couldn't be controlled, that Parliament seized upon the one thing that the medical profession could really offer that had demonstrated effectiveness. And so passed really easily in Parliament. Got a lot of debate about it. Nobody really protested it. It came fairly quickly through the legislative process because it could claim to make the public safer. And a part of what the middle class feared is that the working class were spreading disease and it was their fault. And that if they could get vaccinated, then the middle classes would be safe from them, from the polluting forces of the underclasses. You mentioned that there were certain groups that were against it, like religious groups. Were they using the, the, the working class as their army to affect other change? I mean, the working class is often pawns in these things. Yeah, I don't see it that way. I see it as a group of strange bedfellows that we have um, a religious, a small group of religious middle-class anti-vaccinators who saw this as a pollution of a baby's body, that, you know, God gives you this baby, do not immediately pollute it with um, these disgusting animal products. So that's a pretty small group, but I think mm -hmm. they're in bed with this larger group of working-class people who felt that they were, again, just being experimented on by the state. Um, and I think this dates back to the Anatomy Act of 1832, which allowed for any person who died in a workhouse, and the workhouses under the New Poor Law, which are um, which is passed in the 1830s, are the only place you can get any state welfare. You have to check yourself into a workhouse. So if you become destitute, um, you can't get a job, the only way the government will give you any form of aid is to enter a workhouse. So what the Anatomy Act does is says if you die there, then your body gets handed over to the scientist for dissection. So before the Compulsory Vaccination Act is passed in the 1850s, there had been 20 years of working class people who had felt that the government was really ready to pounce and use their bodies for experimental purposes. And this was just the next stage of that process where now their children were being experimented on testing out this concept of vaccination that really they felt wasn't really worth the risk. So there'd been this long history, I think, for working class people by this point of feeling like they were second class citizens and that their bodies were not their own. But I don't feel they were being used by the middle classes in this context. I think that they were part of this coalition. Mm -hmm. The third handle of this was, of course, middle class libertarians. At the time, they would have called themselves liberals, and we often, you know, call them old liberals to distinguish between them and a new brand of liberalism that emerged at the end of the 19th century. But what these old liberals said was essentially, you know, the state has no right to mandate what I do with my body. Medicine is a personal choice, and it's not something that should be compulsory. So we have that group who are about politics and in this sense, also parental rights, that the rights of the parent override the rights of the state or the public's health. We have these small number of religious people, and then we have these large numbers of working class people, and they really formed a coalition. 
And again, I don't think the working class were pawns here in any way. I think this was just a kind of um, interesting coalition of people with very different interests, but the same attitude towards vaccination. You also bring up the gothic imagery and like the anti-vivisectors and vampires and monsters of, I mean, when we think of a lot of horror, the, the horror genre, we think of, you know, romantic era gothic tales. Yeah, there's these two different strands around the body that um, emerge in the 19th century. And towards the end of the 19th century, the anti-vaccinators really pick up on this language that we usually talk about as a gothic language, a language of sort of bodily violation. And they use the image of the vampire that, you know, this blood sucker takes your blood and then leaves something polluting inside. And blood was really central to the ways in which people thought about bodily health. I think for us today, it's only in the post-AIDS era that blood has kind of reemerged as this potent bodily fluid. But in the 19th century, the idea of pure blood was really crucial. So anything that polluted your blood, that entered your body and polluted your bloodstream in that way was extremely dangerous and very frightening. And that's why we get all this sort of vampire literature reemerging in the late 19th century that anti-vaccinators really picked up on. They also picked up on a similar discourse of the anti-vivisection movement, which was um, related to the laboratory sciences, which start to emerge in the 1870s, that people working in laboratory science and teaching in medical schools start to experiment on live animals um, to demonstrate different kind of systems of the body. And the anti-vivisectors opposed this. They were animal rights activists, and they felt this was absolutely cruel. And they really linked themselves with the anti-vaccinators who felt that vaccination was just another form of an experiment on a live living person, but this time it was babies rather than animals. But both movements really shared this idea of bodily violation, the vampire, the slasher, Jack the Ripper, all these kinds of things that emerged at the end of the 19th century that had people really frightened about their bodies. In some ways, it reminds me a lot of the argument that the anti-vaccination movement makes today, that like there's preservatives that will poison you even though they're not even in the vaccines anymore, and it will alter your mind in like this yes. kind of zombie-like state. You know, now they use more scientific terms in the argument, but it's a very similar argument to what they made, you know, 100 and change Absolutely. years ago. Absolutely. And there's a very strong link in the early 19th century in particular, so in the um, sort of the, the emergence of the anti-vaccination movement, so around the 1850s. There's a really strong link between anti-vaccinators and other people that we sort of call physical Puritans, people who were interested in kind of naturopathy, in the vegetarian movement that emerged around the 1840s, in the temperance and teetotaler movement. The teetotalers took no alcohol at all. This idea that the body is a temple and should be kept pure, so no flesh, no alcohol, sometimes no caffeine. Um, we see a very strong physical Puritan movement in the 1840s and 50s that really linked up with the anti-vaccinators who felt, again, that vaccination was yet another thing polluting your body and sort of the purity of the blood was the key. And I think we see that again in the contemporary anti-vaccination movement in terms of many people being involved in anti-vaccinationism today um, are also against orthodox medicine. They're interested mm -hmm. in naturopathy, natural healing. But, and for me, this penny really dropped when I was doing the research for what was my dissertation, um, I went to a meeting of anti-vaccinators in London. 
And it was hosted by one of these naturopathic societies. And what became crystal clear to me was that the concerns were the same, but the people in the room were so different. The people who can afford to be interested in naturopathy today and pure foods and shop at Whole Foods and go and see an acupuncturist um, are people with disposable income. They're upper Mm -hmm. middle class people who can afford to do this. Whereas the physical purity movement in the 19th century was often associated with working class people. It was cheaper to be a vegetarian. It was cheaper not to consult an orthodox doctor. It was cheaper to talk about purity of the blood and not drink alcohol. All these things which people believed were also economically in their favor. And today it costs a lot of money to do those things. So the ideas Mm -hmm. are the same, but the population has really shifted in relationship to who kind of has access to taking that particular stance. It's really interesting because nowadays we think of, you know, celebrities being the spokesmen and wealthy communities in Southern California having these kinds of issues where now we have outbreaks of diseases that were effectively eradicated in the U.S. or places in Tennessee where they refuse the vitamin K shot when the baby's born. And now there's cases of essentially babies having blood on the brain and dying in incredible numbers because, you know, they think they know what's better than doctors do. Right, right. Um, And, And that recent measles outbreak... That was discovered mm-hmm. at Disney World. Well, it costs $150, apparently, to go to Disney World for two days. So, you know, if we think about, like, who are the people who are not vaccinating their kids today, it's often people with disposable income who can afford to make those choices. But I also yeah. think, you know, and I, I don't think these people are crazy. And I think part of the problem is that the public health community is not properly listening And perhaps Mm -hmm. a different kind of dialogue needs to happen. I'm really interested in people being educated around risk. I think we've completely lost the plot around how to evaluate risk. And so because we've eradicated all those epidemic diseases, no one has experienced them. No one really understands them. No one understands the seriousness. And so the risks that they think they're taking, those decisions are being made without proper knowledge. I don't know if you have kids, but whenever I go to the doctor and my kids need a vaccination, they just hand me a piece of paper and I'm supposed to understand it. They ask me Mm -hmm. if I have any questions. You know, as someone who would not have had a background in that otherwise, you know, apart from having done this research, I wouldn't know what to ask even if I did think I had a question. So I do think the public health community needs to really think about an education program that's based around helping people evaluate risk. Because I still think that people should have the right to opt out of vaccination, but they have to do that in an environment in which they understand the choice that they are making. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Lots of files. What's in these files? Standard medical forms. There's a birth certificate, smallpox vaccination certificate, and then there's this. What is this? 
It's an old tissue collection cassette. The new ones are plastic. Do all these files contain the same materials? Yes, exactly. What year was this person born? 1955. All of these files are 1955. What year were you born? 1964. Why? Let's go find 1964. Thank you so much, Dr. Dernbach, for spending this time talking with us. It was just such an enlightening and an informative discussion of, of your work and, and the work of a lot of people who have looked at this issue historically. I'm very intrigued by this for a lot of reasons. And I, you know, I have very strong feelings about the whole concept of being against vaccines. I remember growing up um, in the United States, I thought, you know, correctly, that we were poor as shit. And um, my mother struggled uh, to get by. You know, things were not easy. Um, this is single mom raising kid by herself, you know, low wage work. In spite of that, I felt like I was so lucky to have just happened to have been born in the United States. I realized that being born in a prosperous, wealthy country was, was a, a lucky thing. I wasn't, you know, some child in Yemen or Ethiopia or starving in China, as the cliche goes. I wasn't thinking of it exactly this way, but I got my rubella vaccine, right? Um, I don't have to die of measles or, you know, be crippled by polio or starve to death. So it's an interesting thing for me to see uh, very privileged people. Uh, one of my favorite Twitter feeds is the Los Feliz Daycare, which is a hilarious uh, satire slash parody of granola munching, vaccine denying elite liberals in, in L.A. It's amazing to me to see people turn away from the extraordinary benefits that have been provided by modern science and medical technology. On the other hand, I actually do kind of understand why people are so freaked out. As Professor Dernbach let us know, there's a sense that there's a purity of the body. And you think about even Christian symbolism, Christian mythology, if you can call it that, um, is very connected with blood. You drink the blood of Christ, you eat the body of Christ. There's a sense of blood being the essence of a person. If that is polluted, if that is dirty, then the body is polluted. And we've seen similar concerns with modern environmentalist movements, uh, concerns about pollution. You think of Rachel Carson and the Silent Spring. You think of environmental racism. You think of the lead and the pipes in the water in Flint, Michigan. There is a sense of the body being polluted. Now, this can get a little bit weird sometimes. There are phenomena like the multiple chemical sensitivity uh, problem that people feel like if they're exposed to aerosol or hairspray or you know preservatives or pop tarts or whatever they're going to have a visceral physical reaction that is not fully documented or proven by science or medicine so far you have a lot of people who are afraid of a lot of things that there's this sort of modern recapitulation of the sense of the body being violated or polluted or exposed to impurities by all manner of forces or chemicals or whatever it is. So it's really interesting to see the anti-vax movement in that context and, and understanding that the integrity and purity of the human body is something that people have thought about for a long time. It's been very central to 
human culture in a variety of different uh, religious and philosophical traditions. It's something that's still with us. And it's taken a different form with this anti-vax phenomenon. So we're going to talk to one of my favorite people, MMJ, Professor Marion Moser-Jones of the University of Maryland. Uh, she did an MPH. She did a PhD at Columbia University. She was in a dissertation writing group with me, which she initiated, which got me to write the first five pages of my dissertation and many other pages after that, uh, which ended up in a book. So I, you know, have mad respect for Professor Jones, and we're going to talk about uh, some of the history of vaccination and some of the controversies over it right now. Tonight, we'll visit Springfield's answer to the Benedictine monks, the rapping rabbis. Don't eat pork, not even vide folk. Can't touch this. Marge, are we Jewish? No, huh? Woohoo! Mm. But first, we all stink. We all. Hey! That's according to a national survey ranking Springfield as the least popular city in America. In science, dead last. I'm telling you people, the Earth revolves around the sun. Burn him! What a story! You've stolen my soul! In culture, dead last. Eleanor, we've got to do something about this depression. So I propose... Oh, that's right, I'm crippled. Hey, Marion. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm all right. How are you doing? Doing pretty well. Good to hear. I'm, I'm so grateful that you were able to take some time to talk to us. Maybe you could say uh, your name and your uh, affiliation. So, yes, I am Marion Moser-Jones. I am an assistant professor and a historian in the School of Public Health, University of Maryland. And uh, I study the American Red Cross and volunteerism and the history of public health. So the other interview that Nick did, you know, was dwelling on sort of the way that vaccination was received in the United Kingdom and England and how there was a lot of working class suspicion toward the idea of vaccination. So I'm just wondering, like, how do you see that unfolding over time? I mean, especially in the United States. Yeah, so in the U.S., you might have known there was an anti-vaccination movement in the 19th century. It was one of those transatlantic movements, and there were stories about children in England who were getting horrible side effects or you know injuries from vaccinations, and they'd come over to Boston. So Boston was a real hotbed of anti-vaccinationism in the Victorian era. There is a famous case, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which is um, a 1905 Supreme Court decision. And Jacobson was an anti-vaxxer. Well, he didn't call himself an anti-vaxxer. That's an anachronistic term. But basically, he was opposed to mandatory smallpox vaccination, which they had in some Massachusetts towns. And so he you know, refused to get vaccinated for smallpox. Now, smallpox vaccination was the first vaccination. It was effective, you know, since Jenner in 1896 proved that it worked. Uh, I mean, 1796. And smallpox had a case fatality ratio of 30%. So you wanted to get vaccinated and, and you needed the population to get vaccinated so that these epidemics would never take root. I mean, the idea is if you vaccinate, you know, like 90% of the people, then the epidemic 
even if the other 10% aren't vaccinated, the epidemic never really can travel in the population. So mm-hmm. that's why you have these ordinances. And Jacobson challenged it. And the Supreme Court in 1905 held that actually the governments had the right under the police power accorded to them in the Constitution to compel vaccination, saying basically public health is part of the police power of the state and vaccination can be mandatory. So that anti-vaccination movement waned in the 20th century as modern medicine grew in popularity and authority. It's not that completely went away, but it was just a few kind of quacks here and there, you know, sort of like the anti-fluoride people in a lot of (laughs) the country, in a lot of the country, the anti-fluoride people are really just quacks, you know, a few marginal quacks. So in the 50s, the anti-vaxxers started up again, and there was, um, there was someone who published a book called The Poison Needle in 1957, and the argument was basically, don't mess with nature, that diseases nature's way of clearing toxins out of the body and it's a strange sort of I mean I would regard it as a distortion of the kind of thinking that motivated Rachel Carson but if you think about it it's sort of like taking it to one more level I mean Rachel Carson in Silent Spring is saying you know DDT and these other chemicals are killing um, off nature and they are introducing toxins to humans and they're, you know, they're harmful to everybody. Um, Even though they didn't have as much proof back then, she took a leap and said that and she was right, of course. But they're saying, you know, that vaccines are a toxin. Like it's similar to that, but it it stayed very marginal. It was like if you went to some health food store, there might be some pamphlet in the corner about vaccines, but it wasn't a major movement or anything. The 1970s to me is where everything begins. If you don't understand something that's going on now, you have to just go to the 1970s. It's this crucible of, of, of contemporary issues and struggles. President Carter launched this childhood immunization initiative, and it was successful. And he based it on this initiative by his friends Dale and Betty Bumpers. Dale Bumpers was the governor of Arkansas, and Dale and Betty went around and with their friends, and they got a bunch of community groups involved, and they vaccinated. 300,000 children in a weekend, and Arkansas went from the bottom of the list in vaccination rates to the top of the list, up to like number six. So it's a huge success, and it's also not that expensive, and in cost-benefit analysis, which was becoming popular in the 70s, you can say the benefits outweigh the cost, because the, the cost of every child who gets permanently disabled from a disease like rubella, you know, whooping cough, polio is, you know, is this much, but the cost per child for vaccination is so much less. So it's a cost-saving measure. And why was this important in the 70s? Well, because of inflation and this idea that the government couldn't do as much as the government could have done in the past. Like Mm -hmm. there was a retreat from the Great Society. And so Jimmy and Rosalind Carter promoted it. And Joseph Califano, the Secretary of Health, Education and Welfare, instead of using government bureaucracy and infrastructure, they used volunteers. So they played on this old Herbert Hoover volunteeristic model. Um, They got the Red Cross, they got nursing organizations, PTAs, and they also got Parents Magazine and some women's 
magazines to endorse it and to say it's parents' duty and especially mothers' duty to vaccinate their children. And it was it was really successful and it only cost something like $57 million, which was not that much. So you have this last sort of small scale example of, you know, quote, big government, but the government going in and improving people's health, right? But they're doing it through this sort of somewhat conservative, old-fashioned, voluntary mechanism we call associationalism. Associationalism, right? Yeah. Herbert Hoover, right? Um, Right, exactly. That makes sense in sort of the Clintonite uh, New Democrat thing that came out of Arkansas in a way, right? Yeah, well, it presages it a little bit. Um, And Clinton picked up on it later. In fact, Clinton, after the defeat of the healthcare reform, after that went down in out of those ashes, they said, well, what can we salvage? And one was children's health insurance, which they did pass in the late 90s. And the other was a children's vaccine program, which is still going. And it's basically free vaccination for all children under a certain income level. And Donna Shalala, she's HHS secretary, promoted it and said, vaccines are a right which was interesting because in America, you generally don't say anything about health being a right since it's not in our constitution. But she said vaccines are right because federal funding paid for the development of vaccines. Your tax dollars went into it. You have a right to get it. In the middle of this, though, so you have the Carter Initiative and the Clinton Initiative, both successful. In between, in the 70s and 80s, what do you have happening in the medical sphere and with women? You have second wave feminism. You have second wave health feminism and you have health consumerism and the decline of medical paternalism. So you have women and patients and anyone who uses healthcare saying, you know, I have a right to know what treatments you're giving me, what the risks are. Before, I mean, doctors wouldn't tell you what the risks and benefits are. They would just say, well, I'm the doctor. This is what you should do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was true, I would say, for men and women. But for women especially, I have a friend who's one of 10 kids and her mom got pregnant with triplets in the late 50s. And the doctor didn't tell her that it was triplets until she gave birth, okay, even though he knew, right, because they thought she'd be too worried and then have a bad pregnancy. They didn't tell women, you know, like if you had cancer, they didn't tell often women if they were dying, you know, and they thought it'd be too upsetting. So in the 70s, there was a big movement, this women's health movement. And it was really encapsulated in the book, Our Bodies, Ourselves. And women were taking control over their own health. So you have the Carter um, Childhood Immunization Initiative telling mothers, mainly, you know, through their PTA representatives and nurses and things like that, that it's your responsibility to vaccinate your kid. And then women are sort of coming to see and patients and ordinary healthcare consumers are saying, well, I have a right to know about these treatments and to make decisions about my own health care. I'm responsible. Mm -hmm. So out of this comes the birth of the mom expert and the parent experts and the parent (laughs) movement at the very end of the 1970s. At the time, you know, there was real mistrust of the government. The establishment, the medical establishment was seen as just part of 
you know, the same thing, the establishment that that led to things like Vietnam and Nixon. So it wasn't really, you know, it wasn't just conservative. In a way, it was it was on the left because it was anti-establishment politics saying, why trust the state? But then there's this politics of the new maternalism, mothers, you know, it's more conservative. And out of this comes this really small group of parents whose children suffered side effects from vaccines. Mm. Mm-hmm. And in 1982, there's this documentary, and this is this heyday of TV investigative journalism. But it's out of the DC NBC affiliate, this reporter, Leah Thomas. It's this investigative report called DPT Vaccine Roulette. And she's saying that the diphtheria pertussis tetanus vaccine is basically roulette. You're playing with your child's life. And she uses that word medical establishment in the beginning. Now, the reality is that a serious problem happens in something like one in a hundred thousand cases. But the parents are saying, well, when it's my child, you know, those statistics don't matter. So by showing these parents and, you know, we're talking about just a handful of parents, this documentary makes the dangers of vaccines this hot topic, like this hot health topic. And it's part of this larger parents movement where parents are sort of taking back power and saying, you know, we need to protect our children against all these dangers that are really television and the birth of cable TV is is telling them about, like uh, child molesters and toxins in the food and things like that, but also vaccines. And in 1986, they get their first victory with the vaccine injury law that says basically the government will compensate uh, anyone who's injured by vaccines. So there won't be lawsuits. This protects the vaccine makers from lawsuits because pharmaceutical companies don't necessarily want to make vaccines if they're going to get lawsuits. Vaccines, in most cases, aren't big money makers for big pharma. So this vaccine injury law allows, it's sort of like a workers' compensation law for vaccine injury. And that's the first big victory in 1986. And that really empowers this movement. And by the early 90s, they're ready when the internet comes along. They get into the internet early. And some of the their leaders get online, like this woman, Barbara Lowe Fisher, and really promote their ideas that vaccines are dangerous that the government isn't telling you everything they know, that the CDC is hiding these side effects. And then by the end of the 90s, when there's increased awareness over autism, and as it, it seems an increase in autism, this really primes the pump for this autism vaccine link to be made. And I just want to say, I mean, that uh, the science linking vaccines and autism has been discredited. And the guy who did that study, uh, the, the Whitehead study, um, right. the study's been retracted. Um, it's shown to be, um, I mean, there was false data. It was just completely wrong. And other studies since have failed to find any connection between autism and vaccines. But yet this idea persists that vaccines cause autism. 
And if you look at the um, anti-vaxxers literature, it's not just about autism. So even if they say, okay, well, maybe vaccines don't cause autism, or maybe there's no proof, they haven't proved it yet, but there's also all this, this rise in chronic diseases, you know, childhood obesity and learning disabilities and other things like that. So maybe the vaccines cause those things as well. Does it matter how we view doctors and has that changed? Is it that in the 50s, we have the kind of sci-fi view of the guy in the white jacket who just can fix the problem with a strong jaw and that American can-do attitude, and Mm -hmm. now we're willing to question? I mean, like you said, the kind of parent? Um, Yes. But the weird thing is that you really point out is that we still want that guy in the white coat with the strong jaw who can give us some kind of magic bullet for whatever ails us and we're still disappointed when we go to the doctor and he and it's you know it's in all of our psyches it's that sort of you know dr kildare or trapper john or these old tv doctors you know um, and uh and he's not there it's just a regular person who went to medical school who may or may not have a treatment for us and uh, which may or may not work because we may just have a virus that's going around or you know aches and pains or something or we may have something complicated that it takes them a while to figure out so i think that's you really hit on this we're we're very culturally conflicted about the role of the doctor in in our society. I guess I just wonder, like, what you think, Marion, just about this uh, wilting of respect for expert authority. Um, it's not something that happens just on the right or the left. Do you really feel like we are in a crisis of an epistemological crisis, maybe, about like what we actually, in terms of journalists, in terms of doctors, in terms of scientists, who do we trust? Uh Is that at the root of this, or is it something else? No, I think that is at the root of it. And I think there was a retreat in the 70s from trusting the establishment to just trusting your own family. It's almost like we've become like the Sopranos, you know, like trust only family, trust only blood. (laughs) I mean, and then trusting yourself, right? Trusting your gut. I mean, isn't that sort of part of the new age thing is, you know, you trust yourself and your your feelings about things. And so, I mean, yeah, I think there's a crisis because we don't, we can't, there's little trust in institutions. And the problem you can't do health without institutions in the 21st century world. And something like vaccination is a population level intervention. It's not about just ensuring that your kids are safe. It's ensuring that all kids are safe. On the other hand, public health didn't do a great job because public health and and, and medicine were both still caught in that old paradigm of we're the scientists, we're, you know, we're the experts, we know better. And so there still hasn't been an adequate effort to communicate to people in a way that that's effective, you know, that reaches them and doesn't just say, oh, well, I'm the expert and you should know better and hear the facts. Um, you know, people trust other people that they might know. So why not use you know, like local people in your campaigns to educate the public rather than just doctors and uh, scientists, you know, and also telling stories like public health is notorious and has been notorious throughout the history for using numbers and trying to convince people. And sometimes it works, but numbers don't 
have a face. If I say 150 children died in this epidemic and 50,000 were affected, I think there was an epidemic, um, a measles outbreak in 1991, and that was part of the reason for the Clinton vaccination program. You know, people don't see the face of those 150, but show me some faces, tell me some stories about people, because it seems like that's what in this day and age people connect to, and they don't connect to, you know, authoritative language. Uh, you've given us so much insight and so much context here, and we really appreciate it. We would like to thank Drs. Durbach and Jones for being on our podcast this time. As we wind out, you know, I, I think it's fair since Alex talked a little bit about his family past, I'll mention a little bit about mine. Um, I grew up um, with a lot of public health professionals in my family. My wife works for CDC. My mother worked for Global AIDS Program and now works for infectious diseases. Um, I have nurses and doctors and surgeons in my family. And, you know, it, it bothers me when I see that there's another outbreak of measles and mumps because kids are unvaccinated or that people in Tennessee are refusing the vitamin K shot at birth, uh, which goes from a 0.001 chance of bleeding out to a 14% chance of the infant dying of bleeding to death for something that's so simple and avoidable. In fact, I have my own eighth month old now. And, you know, we went to see pediatricians to do the tour of pediatric physicians and someone asked the nurse who was giving us the tour if they allowed people who didn't vaccinate their children or had delayed vaccination. And I laughed out loud. I, I literally kind of go, ha! Uh, and the nurse says, no, we refuse to accept any patients who don't vaccinate their children. It's become a world more like the 1930s in that respect, where people are not vaccinating as a given. And as someone who grew up with public health, I know sometimes medicine has side effects and that doctors, unfortunately, are human and they make mistakes. My father's favorite doctor joke is, what do you call the person who is last in their class at medical school? A doctor. A doctor. Exactly right. But, you know, at the same time, there are very few doctors who go in with malicious intent. We're doing the best we can, people. We all are. And so with that in mind, I hope this at least illuminated the argument. Um, I don't think we gave much credence to the anti-vaccination movement, but at least we gave a point of view. The experts tried to see where they were coming from. Yeah, and I mean, I think that one thing we want to say, even though we both have strong feelings, and I think our, our guests also had strong feelings about the anti-vaccination movement, just because someone wears a white lab coat and went to school for 40 years doesn't mean that they're not to be questioned or interrogated or challenged. You know, experts aren't always right. We've seen that many times before, so we, we recognize that. But, you know, we have a lot of problems in this world today that are intractable and difficult and almost maddeningly, almost unresolvable. Getting your kid to not get the measles is a real, real easy one to solve. In the same way, remember that these people who are against vaccinations aren't also trying to be malicious. Most of them think they're doing it for the benefit of their children, and it's right. generally a lack of education on the part of experts who are not doing a good job of conveying proper facts. Well, what we would like to maybe uh, a little self-servingly uh, note is that historians and other humanities scholars may not be the most felicitous communicators, but part of our job and part of what we're trying to do with this podcast is to, you know, 
convey our work to people in an understandable way or the work of other scholars. Uh, unfortunately, people in science and medicine are not always, you know, trained or skilled or socialized in such a way as to socialize with people. Um, if you've ever seen a physician's signature on a prescription, communication is not always prioritized as the most important thing, which is just the nature of the enterprise that they're involved in to some extent. And that maybe that has something to do with the perspective of medical professionals and scientists hasn't always been um, conveyed as effectively as, as one would hope in explaining the dangers of, of not vaccinating. Well, with that, um, hopefully, like always, we triggered some discussion or debate. So find us on Facebook where you can participate in the discussion. And if you're an asshole, we'll block you. So with that in mind, tune in next time when we bring up something we're doomed to repeat. That's right. Thanks, guys. Get up early when the sleeping pill wakes me. I take a wake-up pill to fill with energy. I power on hard and I check my messages. But I don't have any messages. I take a driving pill and head to my car. I drive around it because work isn't very far. I call my phone and I check my messages. But I don't have any messages. All I know is driving on drugs feels better when they're prescription. All I know is the world looks beautiful. The world looks so damn beautiful. On this episode, you heard audio from The Simpsons and The X-Files, both owned by 20th Century Fox, and the song I Feel Fantastic by Jonathan Colton. We would like to thank our guests, Nadia Durbach and Marion Moser-Jones. Our theme was written by Tender Pony. Alex Cummings is an associate professor of history at Georgia State University. His book, Democracy of Sound, Music Piracy and the Remaking of the American Copyright in the 20th Century, is available in wherever books are sold and now available in paperback. Follow his blog at Tropics of Meta. Nick Hoffman is a lecturer at Kennesaw State University and a PhD candidate at Georgia State University. He is the producer for Dude Letter Podcasting. Look him up at dudeletter.com and listen to his other podcast, Myopia Defend Your Childhood. It's easy when you don't stress out about deadlines. All I know is I take my medicine. I always take my medicine. Fantastic, and I never felt as good as how I do right now. Except for maybe when I think of how I felt that day when I felt.